Welcome to the Antioch Austin podcast. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you. For more information about Antioch Austin, please check our website at AntiochATX.com. I really love this church more than y'all already know. I'm looking around at so many faces of people I, I have known and loved throughout the years. Marcus, Mohan, back in the 90s, being in uh, Highland College ministry together, and uh, uh, Taylor Higginbotham coming as an 18-year-old to do our training school back in Waco when we were trying to build that thing, and uh, Moses leading worship in Waco for so many years. His girlfriend, Sarah, was one of our key leaders for a long, long time, and uh, the Weibles let me do their wedding, even though I got to the wedding venue and realized I did not have my suit pants with me. I had a bathing suit and a pair of jeans, and so I wore jeans. And my senior pastor, Jimmy, made me go apologize to Emily's parents for that, you know, right beforehand. Um, like, like J.D. said, Liz was in our, our youth group, and J.D. and I have been to battle about a thousand times together. One battle we did together is something called early morning prayer. Early morning prayer is a battle in any time because you're trying to get college students to show up somewhere at 6.30 a.m. And the place that we would show up is a coffee shop right on campus that saddles up to uh, La Quinta Hotel. And one morning I'm up in front giving vision for the prayer that we're going to do that morning. And I hear this car just honking, just and I'm trying to give vision, but the car keeps honking. And I get done, we are going back into worship, and I run to the back to see what's going on. And J.D.'s already back there, he's got his nice guy face on, because there is this dude who almost drove his car into the back yard of this coffee shop and he has his hand on the horn non-stop he's got his finger in jd's face cussing jd out as loud as he can and all i hear him say is i need eight hours of sleep and i only got six <laughs> and he is just going at it with jd and he looked at me and he goes i got this and i was like thank you and i just went right back to the front led the whole worst of time this guy drove around the coffee shop for the rest of the time just honking his horn like we're gonna pray right now for revival and most distracting prayer time we've ever had i have to leave right at 7 30 to get my son to school and so i run out to the end to get in my truck and as i'm driving off the cop showed up and i just remember jd was walking to his car and the cops drive up, and I looked over at J.D., and I was like, you got this. <laughs> He's like, that's what I do. So he went and handled the cops, and the guy barking his horn, and I went off and uh, went off to school and uh, got Jackson there on time. And I was thinking about that last night, and I was thinking, you know, J.D. and Elizabeth came to Waco because they wanted to be a part of a worldwide revival movement that was going on there at that time, and what they got was La Quinta. You know, what they got was a cuss-out, horn-honking, ticked-off guy at La Quinta going off on them. How many of y'all know what it's like to do something big time because you want to see a vision and then find yourself with a guy honking his horn, cussing you out at La Quinta? You're like, wait, I, sh- I went for, God, you told me, this- I-, I heard Jada give vision for what life group is. And then I let it, and they all showed up, and it's La Quinta. I showed up because I wanted to give myself to this great vision, and then all of a sudden, I found myself going, man, I am here at La Quinta. And if you don't, if you find yourself in a situation where, especially if you're an idealist who can go for a vision, and then you find yourself 
going, wait a minute, I didn't get the job promotion that I wanted. I, I, I didn't, you know, didn't get the breakthrough that I wanted. Then it feels like in that moment when the boyfriend doesn't show up or the girlfriend doesn't show up, it just feels like I went for all that they set up at the front we were going to get, but I got La Quinta. And how am I supposed to live in La Quinta when I, God told me that this vision out there is going to come to pass? And I just felt like God wanted to, to give a prophetic promise to everybody in this room who's in La Quinta right now. And it's out of Proverbs chapter 14, verse 23. Now, and we know in the Old Testament, many would stand at the reading of the word. I don't want you to stand, but I do want some, you to just read this with me, if you would. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 23 says, In all toil there is profit. Or let's just read this version. All hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Or the ESV says, In all toil there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. So, He's basically making this assessment right here. And this is going to be the banner assessment for the uh, text for the rest of our time together. And what he is saying, uh, Solomon is saying, the wisest man that ever lived, is saying, when you don't understand what's going on, you feel like you're not getting profit. You feel like you're getting poverty. You're getting La Quinta when you want the vision. God is burning something inside of you right now that you don't see yet. And he's building something inside of you that you're going to need later. Romans 8, verse 28, I believe is one of the most recited verses in Christendom and one of the most least believed for those of us who call ourselves Jesus followers. I'm going to put it up there, but I probably don't even need to put it up there because all of you actually have it. But let's read this one as well. This will be the last verse you have to read out loud. If you're new with us, we don't do this every week just because I'm here and I'm a guest speaker. So Romans 8, verse 28, and we know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. A lot of you didn't even need that verse up there. You already had that one unlocked. But my question is, what does that verse really mean? My second question is, do you really believe it this morning? Maybe it's the best way I can picture what this verse is talking about. I've been a college pastor. I just finished 10 years. Within the first few months of me being a college pastor, I did a leadership training. And God gave me this amazing artistic idea. And I went to my artist and I said, I want you to paint during worship. And I want you to make people so confused by that painting. Because I want them to realize at the very end when we walk up there and we turn it upside down, you were painting the picture upside down all along. And when it flips over, it's going to be Jesus and they're all going to be like, oh, it's going to be amazing. I don't even have to preach a good sermon. They're all going to be crying and God's going to show up. And It was titled Upside Down Jesus. What do you do when the world's upside down? So this is what I did. Of course, she didn't do the best job. That's before I knew about production practices and things like that. She got done and everybody went. And I walked up and said, like, if you were waiting for that moment and that's Jesus, they were like, oh, that was Jesus. Okay. We didn't know what that dude was. So fast forward 10 years, I'm at this leadership conference not too long ago with uh, our young adult pastor, Luke White, and uh, there's 4,500 people at this conference. At the end of worship, this guy starts painting, and he starts losing people in his painting. And I'm like, oh, I see what you're doing. I see what you're doing. And I just start loving it. I'm like, oh, wait, this is going to be awesome. And I lean over to Luke, I'm like, you know what's going on? He's like, that's horrible. And I'm like, oh, no. It's not horrible. It's beautiful. He's like, you're losing it. I'm like, no, you're losing it. It, It's coming. It's coming. And I'm just like sitting there thinking I'm the only one in 4,500 people that knows what's about to happen. Gets done. The preacher walks up. He looks at the the painting and he goes, and he flips it. It was the most beautiful picture of Jesus. And a gasp went out in the room and I was like, I already knew that was coming. I was like, 
Autographs afterwards. I knew that was coming. Y'all stole my idea. I need royalties. So he stands up, and the preacher did something that then throws a curveball at me. And he says, I have a question for you. How many of you knew that that was about to happen, that we were going to flip it upside down? I thought I'd be the only one, but about 500 others thought, saw it as well. And we raised our hand. He said, those of you who just raised your hand, you had a drastically different experience than everybody else. The last seven to ten minutes have been brutal on about 4,000 people in this room. And many of them gave up along the way. They were like, I'm, I'm kind of tired of this. This is, get that guy a mulligan. It's over. But several hundred of you were sitting there going, wait for it. Wait for it. You were nudging your neighbor. And I was like, oh, man, he is calling me out in front of everybody. You were nudging your neighbor. And all you kept saying was, wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. And I'm sitting there, and I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm watching this thing happen, and it hits me. This is what happens when life punches back, when the vision punches back, when things aren't going like I want them to go. It's like all of a sudden the painting is upside down. The pain is in my face. And only those who truly believe, not know, who truly believe Romans 8.28 can stand there and say, this isn't good yet. Must mean God's not done. Because if you don't know that, you'll be like, it's not good yet. God's not good. But when you know that, you go, it's not good yet. God's not done. Now, if you've been in a Carl Gully sermon, which is about five of you before, did you know what I like to do is take one story, unpack it the whole time. You'll feel like you just got rolled up in a tortilla passage, and I'll fling you out in there for the week. And I'm going to do something a little different, if that's okay. I'm just going to take those two passages. We now have our table. I'm going to build about three legs off of that that is going to take us into how we can believe that passage is true. So if you don't like the style of preaching, blame me. Don't blame J.D. and come back next week, all right? Because what I'd like to do is piggyback off this series you've been in called Mind Games. You were part of the last couple of weeks. Liz did a message where she talked about how our perspective will in many ways influence our process, determine our process. And J.D. talked about how our now is connected to our then. So I'm going to kind of go off some of those similar vibes here. And I'd like to say, what is God doing when you're in your La Quinta moment? What is he actually working on? I would like to propose he's not some sick father playing with you during this moment. I would like to propose that he's actually doing surgery on you in three areas, your emotions, your troubles, and your theology. And we're going to talk about these three things briefly. And in honor of J.D., I'm titling this message, La Quinta is Screaming. <laughs> so for both girls who are taking notes, you can write that down, all right? So we're going to start by going to the Word of God, Exodus chapter 16, verse 2 and 3, number 1, emotions. Let's look at our emotions in a group of people who did not handle them well. I'm so thankful for the word of God, giving me a bunch of people who were morons that kind of reflect me in many ways, and I can relate to them. Chapter 16 talks about a people who have just come out of the wilderness, and it says that the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So we've obviously got a little perspective problem here because now there's no food, there's no water, and there is high emotions. In other places you see they tried to kill their leader. So there's an emotional thing happening right now with the people of Israel. And right about the time that you and I are about to throw rocks at the people of Israel, I would like to ask a question. Anybody in here been an overseas mission trip? Yeah. What happened when you got put in extreme heat? When you got put in extreme cold? 
the life, the life's outbreak happened for you. 14 girls crammed in a house and no water pressure, right? What, what happened with you when you couldn't go to Starbucks and your food was like not really food? What happened to you in that moment? I don't know about you, but I can go from saving thousands of dollars, go tell people about Jesus by day four, I can be halfway to atheism. You know, like, <laughs> like there's no God. There was a God back in Texas. He left me at the border. Here's the deal. Israel was given a promise. It was actually three words, the promised land. And they thought the promised land happened tomorrow. And I'm starving and I'm thirsty. And all of a sudden, people who were beating them all day long look appealing. And I'd love to make fun of them, except that I do the very same thing. When the painting is upside down, I typically start going, I would just love to go back. I would just love to go back. And I'm looking for a sinful thrill or escape to go back to a slave driver. Because it looks more appealing than the upside down painting that I'm facing right now. And the result, they grumble at the lack of food and water. And here's our, experience, here's our lesson that we learn here. Our lesson is this, that the people allowed their experiences to dictate their emotions. But I'd like to pause for a moment and show you what their leader Moses was doing. And this is maybe why he was called the, the most humble man in the word. Of course, he wrote that, but we'll give him grace. But anyway, <laughs> Exodus chapter 34 in verse 29 says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. So Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments, and he is so encaptured with God, he's been so in the presence of God that he comes down and his face is glowing. He doesn't know it. He's just Moses coming down the mountain. And others are looking going, You've been with God. So you have a people who have allowed their experiences to dictate their emotion, but you have an, a leader who has made sure that his experiences were tied to his encounters. So we say that again. You have a people who are allowing their experiences to dictate their emotions. You have a leader whose experiences are tied to his encounters. Now, being an emotional person, this is hard for me. If you're one of those steady people, you're like, I don't even get you right now. And I, I wish I could do what you do. But I can't do what you do. I'm in a very emotional person. This is hard for me. And especially in the early days of ministry and family, when my ideals were here and I felt like we were batting it like way down here. Even this year, if I'm just being vulnerable, it's probably been one of the harder years of my 42 ancient years that I've lived here on the earth. But with that being the case, you can sit there and, and in the midst of all of that, and go, what am I supposed to do? So the journey I've been on has been learning how to hear my emotions but not listen to them. The journey of what these people should have done, they should have heard their emotions for food and water but not let them dictate, not speak into their life at such a, a loud level. So I'm not talking, when I say hear your emotions but not listen to them, I'm not talking about callousing yourself so you self-protect. I'm not talking about you stuffing your pain and never crying in public or, you know, dealing with the, with the agony that you're going through. I'm not trying to be insensitive like that. I would never do that. What I'm talking about is allowing God to give you an emotional resolve so that when the food and water are gone out of your life and the picture is now upside down, you don't bail. Because maybe one day you're coming, coming down that mountain and your face is going to glow. You would never know it. But everybody staring at you would. I was doing a wedding at the end of May. It was an outdoor wedding. And I have to be honest, as hard as I worked on this wedding, I did not really fully know what I was going to say when I got up there for the message part. 
always change that part depending on the couple, and I really wasn't clear. By God's grace, there was a rain delay. And <laughs> 15 minutes beforehand, I'm sitting there in the back going, Spirit of God, I do not want to blow this thing. I knew I could copy-paste something so it wasn't going to be horrible. But, uh, oh, Andrea, you were there. And so I'm letting you into what really happened. So I'm back, I'm backstage, back just going, Spirit of God, Spirit of God, Spirit of God. And I had this thought. Two weeks before, all of the people who were serving with Antioch overseas this summer through the Engage the Nations um, initiative came together for training. And one of the girls who's over all of that, her name is Maddie Phoenix, and she was on our college team. A lot of y'all know Maddie. And we asked Maddie a question. I said, Maddie, you're going to have all these people, hundreds who will come through. you got about 40 that are going to be under your care for three months. What's the one thing you want from them? And without hesitating, she said, I'm looking for people with a soft heart and strong shoulders. Because if they have soft shoulders and develop a strong heart, there'll be no use to the kingdom of God there. And I could hear that ringing in my head as I was backstage, and I thought, that's what I'm going to do. And I went up there, and I gave this charge. I want to charge you through marriage. It's not easy. And marriage has a vision up here, and sometimes marriage punches back. And when it does, I want to challenge you that you would be someone in marriage who develops a soft heart and strong shoulders, not bailing when it gets tough and letting your emotions take over. Well, I got done, and I was getting all the, well done, pastor, great job, reverend. I'm not a reverend. You know, like the, all these weird comments, we always get it. But this one lady comes up. She's got to be about 70 years old. She kind of pats me. She's like, good job, pastor. And then I start to see her chin quiver. And she says, you convicted me today. She said, I've been married for over 40 years. I don't have a soft heart and strong shoulders. Her phrase was, I have a bitter heart and saggy shoulders. And she starts crying right there at the dinner reception table. It says, when I go home, I've got some work to do. I thought, this is a woman who's realized I've allowed my emotions to dictate, my experiences, I'm sorry, to dictate my emotions. It's affecting everything, even the relationship that's most important to her. The painting had gotten flipped upside down, and some of she's believing, God's not good, no one is good, and God had some work to kind of flip it upside down. So if you want God to build his kingdom through you, and if you want to see that vision come about, you've got to realize that what God may be doing is doing some surgery on your emotions, healing them, training them, so that when the moment comes, your emotion doesn't, tick, doesn't dictate your experience, but your experiences are tied to your encounters with God. Now we're going to come back to this later, so let's move on to number two. Point number two, your troubles. And we're going to flip over to a guy who knew some about that in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 16 and 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 and 18. A guy named Paul wrote this to this church that he loved, and he writes this, so we do not lose heart. Let me pause there. The indication is that you can lose your heart. But he says we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction. I lied to you. I'm going to make you say this out loud. I repent for lying to you earlier in church, okay? Three words, light, momentary, affliction. Can we say those? Light, momentary, affliction. He is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Light and momentary. Now, I'm not going to make you read another verse, but I am going to ask for some crowd participation. For any of you Bible readers out there who've read anything about the Apostle Paul, 
Could y'all name for me some of his light momentary troubles you know about? Out loud, three, two, one, someone go. Beatings, shipwrecks, prison, snake bites. That's the biggest one. We can stop right there. Yeah. He called those things light momentary. Now list your troubles this week. Snake bite, maybe, you know. <laughs> Shipwreck. <laughs> what is it, slap your husband? He probably deserved it. That's okay. Let's go ahead and just get the whole list. Let's go, let's fast forward a few chapters and, and let him lay out his troubles. He lays them out because people are questioning whether he should really be a leader over them. And in verse 23, he says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, brothers, in toil and hardship. There's that word again, in toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of me, of my anxiety for all the churches, who's weak and I'm not weak, who's made to fall, and I'm not indignant. And his lead up to that, about seven chapters earlier, for these light, momentary afflictions. How can that list be considered light and momentary? Many people with one-tenth of this list have given up their walk with God. How can it be light and momentary? It's only light and momentary to someone who believes the painting's about to flip and they're waiting for it. And that naturally makes me is reminds me of my fifth grade girlfriend. Joy to charm. Joy to charm. <laughs> this is a hard illustration when your kids are on the front row. But Joy was so pretty and she was a great singer. She was really sassy. So I finally... Matt mustered up the courage one day to go to her and to say those five magic words that all of us who lived in the 80s said to get a girlfriend. You can say it with me if you want to. Will you go with me? Stupid. We never went anywhere, but that was the question that we asked. <laughs> now, let me just clarify one thing. <laughs> Nobody should ever be dating in fifth grade ever, all right? Can I get an amen on the second row? Yeah, never should you be dating in fifth grade, okay? Now, that said... Like I said, I did what all fifth grade boyfriends do, I, nothing, okay? I never talked to her. I never sat by her. Sorry, honey, I did some of that at the beginning days of my relationship with Blair. But in all toil, there is profit. <laughs> we just celebrated 19 years, so I, I learned something. But because I did all this to her for so long, this went on for months and months. Remember, even though she made me a little friendship bracelet, I remember friendship bracelets, take the maroon and white thing, kind of twist it, and, you know, you wear it, and you talk about who gave it to you. Stupid. But we did it. In the midst of all that, I never talked to her again. So we're walking into our little private school chapel one day, and Joy is bawling, weeping. And I walk up to her, first time I've talked to her since I've said those five words, and I'm like, what's wrong? She looks at me, she's like, you treat me like Satan. That's what, that's what you say in private school breakups, okay? Now, you treat me like Satan. And I'm like, what'd I do? She's, 
like, you never talk to me. You never sit by me. I'm done, and I'm breaking up with you. And her friends were like, <laughs> and then they all, like, walked off, and they all sat together. And my friends were like, this way, you know, so I waved sat with my friends. But honestly, it was so hard for me. I, I didn't understand what was going on, but it really hurt this little fifth grade heart. I mean, I was, I was devastated. As a matter of fact, that bracelet she gave me, I wore for two years until it, it just kind of like evaporated and fell off my body. I wore that thing every day. And I remember even in that time thinking, there will never be anybody better than Joy Descharmes. I am doomed. There's no recovery from this. Sixth grade, I'm still thinking that. I will never bounce back. Seventh grade, as the bracelet is slipping off of me, the pinnacle is gone. Now, you laugh about that, and I do too. But truth be told, we all have a joy to charm in our life. Maybe not a boy or a girl necessarily, but it's a heartbreak. Could have been a doctor's diagnosis, a workplace disappointment. Could have been a church hurt, a miscarriage, a family betrayal. And if I had said one of those things, we wouldn't have all laughed. And I've dealt with all those things I just listed. We wouldn't have all laughed. We might have started crying. Why? Because when you're going through that, the painting's upside down. And the trouble is not light and momentary. And the question comes, how will I ever recover from this? The only way you ever recover, I'm sorry, the only way you can ever look back at joy to charm in your life and see it as light and momentary is if you believe at the heart level. I'm not asking you, do you know the verse, if you memorized it and get points in VBS. What I'm asking you is if at the heart level you believe that God works together all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, he's not, it's not good. He's just not done. So I've got to keep believing until he's good. In this life or the next life, it's going to be good because he's good. You only get through that and call it light and momentary when you believe the painting's about to flip and you're waiting for it because you believe that he is good. And I want to speak this prophetically into your life if the painting's upside down right now. If it's not, probably one day in your life the painting will flip. And if it does, I just want to say this. For, for, I want to say this to you. That God has something that's going to change in your life. How do I know? Because in 1995, I started dating this girl named Blair. Can everybody just say, <laughs> Upgrade. Upgrade. And while we were dating, I wasn't like, uh, Blair, joy. Blair. <laughs> Two years of dating, I put it through misery. Two, six more months of engagement. Now 19 years of marriage. Been through ups and downs. And even last night, kind of late into the night, we were having trouble sleeping, just talking about, and I just kept saying, I'm just so thankful for you in my life, Blair. I couldn't make it without you in my life. If you had told fifth grade Carl, there's a Blair coming, I'd be like, forget Blair. <laughs> Joy called me Satan. <laughs> God's got an upgrade for you. Amen. And it's coming. In this life or the next one to come, it's going to come. Why? He won't allow the enemy to get glory. He's not going to let the enemy get glory in your life. So when this is all said and done, the upgrade's going to come. You get the joy of the Holy Spirit, and he gets the glory of God, which is what he deserves. So what is happening 
as your emotions are being trained, as your troubles are being put back into perspective, I believe God is developing in you a theology. Point number three, your theology. Now, theology in its root word basically means the study of God, okay? So when we talk about theology, which I love, we're usually thinking about what it means to study biblical uh, subjects and texts of scripture. Well, you know, why do you believe that healing is or not for today? Why do you believe that the Trinity, God is three and one? Those are theological topics that we would say we need to unpack and those are very important, etc. But that's not in its essence what I'm talking about right here. What I'm saying, when I say your theology, I'm asking you this, what do you truly believe about God at your core? Whether you walked in today for the very first time and you, you never even uttered a prayer out loud or whether you've been a veteran and you've been like an elder in another church somewhere, wherever you are, what do you believe about God in your core? Not what do you say, not what do you memorize. At your core, what do you believe? Deep inside. Here's why. Because when, when tragedy strikes, what you believe about the word of God and your revelation about the, and your revelation about the word of God, that is what holds you. Now, I'm the oldest of five boys. And so my youngest brother, Jeff, was a, was a prodigal son for a lot of years. He came back to Jesus, and in the midst of that, he had a heart defect that was really a big deal. And you put those two things together, and even though he returned and gave his life to Jesus, and then about six months after he gave his life to Jesus, he had this heart defect thing flare up, and he died on the spot. And that right there, I would define as one of maybe the greatest black hole I have ever been in in my life. Because in premature death, you just can't see how the painting is ever going to flip. You, you can't imagine, and if you've been through it, I'm not trying to say I relate to your pain because everybody's grief is different. So please feel, hear me. I'm not trying to just gloss over this and, and, and say, well, I'll make it. it. Everybody's pain is different, and if you're there right now, I... I want to hug you at the end because I, I, I know that the pain to a degree that you're feeling, but only God really knows the pain you're really feeling. But for us to make it through that long time as a family, it, I was at times wondering how our family made it intact, how we made it intact, and everybody was still following God. And that's actually one of the biggest questions I get in my life. I know your brother died. How, back in 2005, how did you guys all make it? So I always tell them the same thing. My senior pastor, Jimmy Seibert, the leader of the Antioch movement, had been overseas visiting some of our missionaries in the Middle East. When he came back, he got some of us together, he disciples, and he said, I asked all of them a question, and I want you all to think about this. I asked them, what is the thing that if it were to happen to you, you would leave the mission field and go home? And he said, I want you to wrestle this to the ground, because the enemy is going to one day try to present something to you, and I want you to have already wrestled it before it gets there. And he told us how one lady on the team, Kara, had said, if one of my children ever died, that'd be the end of my mission work. I couldn't take it anymore. I'd go home. And he said, that's understandable. And I just leave you to the mercies of God. Figure out where to go from here. And then he asked us, what about you guys? What would happen to you that if it happened, you would walk away from God? Maybe not outwardly, but inwardly, you'd start stepping back. I had to agree with Kara. If one of my family members ever passed away, that'd be the end. And I said to myself, I've got some work to do to figure out how am I going to wrestle through that? This was a long process, weeks that led into even months of me going, could I keep following Jesus if one of my family members passed away? 
And during that time, I studied the life of Job and dug in to a deep place to go, God, I need you here. How am I going to get there? And God began to do this work in me. Because here's what you need to hear. You don't decide your theology at the funeral home. At the funeral home or on the other call it says your brother died, you don't then go, I wonder what I believe about God. It has to already be down in the ground. So when all my brothers got back into Waco and my brother Jay's Mark's a worship leader, and he began to just sing this song that had been written about Jeff's life, and we began to worship together, this prophetic, spontaneous song came out of me. And I just out loud over my family started going back to Job chapter 13, verse 15. A verse that doesn't make sense that if I just kind of throw it at you. But if you see the context of Job, the context of where I had been, you see it that says that though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. I'm not letting this go, but in the end, I'm going to hope in him. It had already been settled. What I had put in that ground years ago was surfacing at that moment. Why? Because in all toil, there's profit. God was burning something into me that I couldn't see. He was building something into me that he knew I was going to need later. And I just want to say today, as we start closing, that if, if, if you're in one of these places dealing with emotions or troubles or wrestling with what you really believe about God, it could be that in your life, the painting is upside down. As a fellow struggler, who hasn't been through everything you've been through, I just want to say I'm standing here as a representative of the heavenly host saying, wait for it. 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 If it's not good, it's not done. Wait for it. Wait for it. And so today, you just have to ask the question as you walk out of here, because if you don't do this right now, if you leave, then you'll go to lunch and you'll forget by the first time you have an argument with your spouse out in the parking lot. So you've got to nail this down right now. Have you been allowing your experiences to dictate your emotions or even tying your experiences to your encounters with the living God? Is there a joy to charm in your life that you're saying, God, I don't ever see how this could flip. Somehow you're going to have to show me how this could be light and momentary. Maybe for some of you, you need to draw a line in the sand, go back to that old hymn, I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back. I, I don't know what that is, and I don't say that tritely because I, I don't know what you're dealing with. But here's what I want you to know as we wrap up this time. That what could be going on is that whatever you're dealing with right now feels like a painting upside down. And you could be wondering if there's any profit that will come out of this toil. And I just want to speak this over you. That you could be up on a mountain wrestling with these commandments and dealing with the finger of God yourself. And I just want to speak over you. There could be a moment where people could look at you and say, how are you still going on? Your face is glowing. And you would look there and be like, oh, I didn't even know it was. I just never stopped saying yes. Let's all stand to our feet.